You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Have you found the keys to unlock your best trip? On a Trafalgar tour, you unlock more than just the world. We give you the key to let down your walls and make lifelong friends. The key to discovering hidden talents and fresh perspectives. From one-of-a-kind experiences to iconic destinations, Trafalgar gives you the keys to unlock your best self. Discover more at trafalgar.com unlock. That's T-R-A-F-A-L-G-A-R dot unlock. Tour differently. Today's episode is going to be about Tom Deslongchamp, a contemporary artist who works in a variety of media, but his marker drawings have been living rent-free in my brain since I first stumbled across it like a year ago. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. I thought it's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me once again, I have my good friend, Emily Fiedler. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, So today, I am excited. We're talking about an artist, a contemporary artist, Tom Deslongchamp. And for once, I know I got the pronunciation about right because I actually asked him, how do you say your name? And he spelled, he was nice enough to spell it out phonetically for me. That's perfect. (laughs) He said there's probably like, you know, some French history there that, but like his family has dumbed it down to Deslongchamp. So, um, I appreciate that they apparently also need the American phonetic pronunciations. Yes. So right off the bat, he was born October 7th, 1984. So um, like as I was going through this biography, I'm going to I'm just going to tell you, I was having so many moments of like connection because like I was born at the end of 83. Like he and I went to school at like the same time, studied Mm -hmm. some of the same stuff. Um, So this was a little bit weird in in terms of the way that some of this stuff, like I just found myself relating to so many aspects of of the connections. Yeah. Um, So hopefully I can do him justice because I am loving his artwork and don't want to piss him off. Um, so <laughs> to, to get started, um, he, he doesn't really remember his first drawings. He says his mom said that before he could even talk, he was drawing walking windows, little windows with faces and arms and legs, which I just find absolutely delightful as an image. And I would love to see him making those and animating those as an adult. Cause I thought the exact same thing when I was reading through the bio that you sent, like, I visualized what it looked in my mind and I was like thinking about like the cartoons of the time and like where he would pull the imagery from. See, what I was thinking was I was thinking of, you know, that um, 
because you and I are both art teachers, that schematic drawing phase of like, you know, the person as the circle face with arms mm-hmm. and legs coming out of it. I was picturing a slightly more rectangular version of that, you know? I as was like, picturing like schoolhouse rock. <laughs> like, but like the bill, like the paper yeah. that the bill becomes the law. Like that's but my but like simpler. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm I'm imagining as a child he was doing something very much like just sort of circle square with arms and legs coming out of it. But I imagine today it would be almost like Keith Haring style kind of faces Mm -hmm. rectangular. I don't know. Um, We probably should move on though. Cause we're like at what two years of life (laughs) into this. We're covering his whole life. (laughs) We are covering it all. Um, He grew up in Seattle. He said his parents had like a big property South of the city and for those growing up today, this may seem a little bit hard to imagine, but like in the 80s, children were feral. I mean, he he was able to go and explore, build forts, going into abandoned spaces. He talked about like an abandoned high school that he would explore, you know, doing a lot of the stuff like that as as a kid, I, I wasn't a skateboarder. I was more of the like inline skating, but like. You know, the way we would we would do all of that sort of stuff, skating, BMX, biking. He liked karate. He was into like the solo stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always find it interesting, like he describes his childhood, a lot of fun of the exploration and that independent autonomy. It's like it's the dream and the nightmare of like children left to run wild because he says he was also apparently doing all this stuff, exploring at a space where um, a serial killer had like dumped several victims. So like, but like (laughs) maybe that's why we don't get to explore like that anymore. (laughs) Probably why my childhood was a little bit more like watched, like, <laughs> <laughs> supervised. But I got to say there was something like because as my house growing up was was on a wooded area. And I, I vividly remember just that sense of independence and like the pride in building stuff with mm-hmm. the found objects and materials of the woods, you know, whether it's sticks or you'd find bricks and other like discarded stuff. And you'd be like, what can I do with this? How can I build something up until the city comes to, you know, knock it all down. But you <laughs> was that not a thing that happened to other people? I, I mean, I was thinking about like, I had a large backyard growing up and I would also like spend a lot of time building and outside and like looking at the shapes that the trees made, but like, no, the city did not. <laughs> so I was like, oh, a little depressing. Yeah, like the uh, at least <laughs> in the woods behind our house, like the the city came to to knock it down because they said like some neighbors were concerned that um, people would get up to no good in a little fort that ten year olds built. Um, so yeah, but Tom was doing all that sort of stuff, creating his own way in in the world he says like his brother was more into the team sports baseball he was doing his own little imaginative stuff always enjoyed the drawing i find i i asked him like what was the earliest artwork that captivated you and i found it interesting he said like as a six-year-old 
it was just like a card that his family got from like a family friend, like their oldest son had drawn something on there. That sounds to me almost like an MC Escher type thing. Cause he describes a pencil drawing a hand holding a pencil, um, in that sort of like, I imagine that twisted circular impossible composition that Escher would have done. But to him, it was just like mind blowing that someone he knew could draw something so well. And I found that kind of as a through line in his biography is he's just having these like aha moments throughout his life as he's like, you know, he discovers symmetry. So when he's at his brother's baseball game, he's using both hands. And, you know, like for him, he says it was like the ultimate artist hack by just making both sides mirror each other. It would automatically look good and complex and interesting. So, you know, six, seven years old, just drawing in the dirt while other boys are playing the sports. Um, (laughs) I'm curious, what's your favorite art hack? Like favorite art hack. I know I'm putting you on the spot, but like my go to. Yeah, share yours really quick while my brain goes. For me, I always tell my students like just masking off the perimeter of your paper beforehand. um, You're going to end up with a little frame around it. And the neatness of that frame is automatically going to send a signal to a viewer that like this is someone who is paying attention and like refining their craft. Mm -hmm. And so like, I always tell, because you know, kids always want to splatter paint and do all that sort of stuff. I always say like, at least mask off around the perimeter first. Because if you Mm -hmm. do that, then there's that contrast of the neatness and the chaos and it, it shows intentionality and all of that. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite? I, I think my favorite hack, which is really just a drawing exercise, is taking simple shapes and drawing lightly to turn them into the complex characters and like watching like a second or third grader, like just mind blown when they're like, I want to draw SpongeBob. And I'm like, okay, what shape is SpongeBob? And then we walk through that together. But like starting lightly and like building up a drawing is something that they sometimes struggle with they think they have to get it right right away which they don't yeah i think that is that is a hundred percent true i mean figuring out how to compose something as a collection of shapes as opposed to thinking it has to be the perfect contours from the start mm-hmm. um yes that is like one of my go-to strategies as well i'm all that's why i always like i always have students drawing robots because mm-hmm. it's it's like one of my favorite assignments because it is so easy to see how it's a collection of shapes to build something complicated. And I, I'm all about building and discovery and all of that. We, when we have like five minutes left at the end of class, we started doing mystery drawings, which is just a guided drawing that I lead and I don't tell them what they're drawing. And so to help them understand, like we're putting a shape together, but we don't know what it is. And I, do them so that they have to flip them upside down to reveal like the piece of what it is. So it was a pumpkin patch, but once we flipped it upside down, that's when it made the pumpkin patch. So even something like drawing upside down sometimes helps a lot. And this is another one of my favorite hacks. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love the drawing upside down and that just like that. It's, it's almost magical when Mm -hmm. something is revealed like that. That's the magic in art. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to bring this back to our actual topic, um, that's one of the things that that Tom 
really focuses on is just like the magic and that awe and wonder of creating in art. Like that's kind of what he tries to bring to his art. And I would say from my experience, like he definitely is successful in that. But in all of his years growing up, he says like, that's kind of what got him. Like um, initially he, he was, you know, like I said, running wild and, and doing all of the, the sports and exploration and wanted to be a stunt man for a little while. But he says um, around middle school, he had an assignment to do a project on a historical figure. And his mom suggested, <laughs> I love how he puts this, the crazy artist who cut off his ear. For those who don't uh, know the reference, that would be Vincent Van Gogh. And he says he just did a deep dive like doing all all of the research, reading multiple books all about Van Gogh's life and his work. And he was just sort of awestruck and fell in love with the not only the art, but just like the passion and the tragedy and like that realization that art is not just something that's nice to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I would fully agree, like the Van Gogh biography and that story is it is all about the passion and the emotional resonance of art and how he can give life to even the simplest things like a, you know, a vase of flowers or a, a, a field and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he continues his exploration of new media and I should put new in giant air quotes cause you know, 1999 he's, he's, playing around with like macromedia flash, which mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize is still a thing, but he still uses it. I, yeah. I still have like PTSD from trying to learn to do stuff in flash and like all the little wonky stuff, like doing action script where you, you're this not, is, a- <laughs> I, I know of it, but yeah. I've never used it myself. Okay. So for those unfamiliar, Flash was this, it's like an animation sort of computer web, like web animation stuff in like the late 90s, early 2000s um, when web design was just awful. If I'm being 100% honest, like <laughs> our our taste and stuff that we thought was like really cool. I I know when you see pictures of us from like the early 2000s like our sartorial choices our clothing makes it seem like we really had great taste but actually we didn't um and so flash was what people would use to put those animations on website landing pages Mm -hmm. and have like the music playing and all of that sort of stuff that just today reads as tacky and annoying and over the top but like to to us in the late nineties, it was cutting edge. And I did spend quite a while trying to learn to animate in flat. I did a little bit of like really bad animation in flash and like learning action scripting was the code coding language. It was kind of like JavaScript and all of that. Okay. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it, it was, that was one that like, I, I'm like, shrinking a little bit just hitting that page that part of my notes about like macromedia flash and all of that (laughs) 
it, he clearly didn't have as much of a traumatic experience as you did seeing as no, he's no he's he's good at what he does um mm-hmm. that's the difference i was just doing you stuff have different with talents <laughs> I I I I'd hope so. But um yeah, he was and and that's one of those things that I I think again, it's just the awe of what you could do cuz that was something new, a new frontier in the earlier sort of wild west days of the internet. Um and that's kind of what he did when he went to college then, um, you know, he went to RISD, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, a very good school if you like to draw bicycles. And after after college, he gets a job and he said, like, one of the things and this is what kind of leads into the artwork we're going to be discussing today while he was at that job, he always carried a sketchbook with him and he would be like his boss didn't care if he sketched a little bit from time to time. He's making doodles because he really wants to be creating something every day, whether it's a drawing, a painting, an animation, writing a song like he's just got that drive to create something every single day, which I think is a fantastic habit. Mm-hmm. And that's how you become more creative by just sitting down and doing it. But he felt that need to create. And so while he's at work, he's got his sketchbook and he started doing daily portraits of his friend, Mike. And after he was like refining that process a little bit, he starts thinking about how can I get some color in there? And so literally he just looked around and he saw a Crayola red marker just sitting out on the floor. And so that's what he used. But as you and I both know, one of the drawbacks to markers is the same thing that a lot of people love about it. It's really bold, saturated colors Mm -hmm. as a general rule. So rather than drawing directly on the paper, he started to put the ink onto his finger and then used like his fingertip to smudge and apply the color in that way. And I got to say, I have been blown away. Like the first time I saw those pictures, um, like it, it still sticks with me. I, I first came across those images like a year ago when I was making an Art Smart episode about markers and I needed mm-hmm. a story for the first segment. And I saw those and like it just stuck in my head for like a year because I was just so blown away that somebody was doing that with markers. Yeah, changing the media so much that, like, as elementary teachers, we know very well and we use, like, one or two ways, like. Yeah, and I think there's something really delightful about the use of that elementary medium, mm-hmm. the, the kind of thing that is so sort of connected to youth and that passion of like your first discoveries in how to draw and how to make stuff. And, and I mean, he's now using slightly more elevated markers because as a fine artist, you've got to have archival qualities. So he's using like Tombow markers and, you know, Mm. um, slightly elevated pigments and all of that. But, um, Still, he's using that marker technique and the markers in a new and different and innovative way. And when I was reading through his biography and like the 
availability of a crayon of marker, like you can get them nearly any at convenience store, like grocery stores, uh, Target, Walmart, art supply stores too. Like I couldn't help but pull a parallel for it with Jen Stark and how like her artistic journey began. Um, mm. I don't know if you know this. She was she was in art school. She was she didn't have money for all the supplies. And she's like, what's the cheapest thing I can buy and the most I can buy? And it was construction paper. And that's how she started making her animations as well as her sculptures, just like layering it on. And, you know, it says a lot about the materials that like we get to use as art educators. Like they aren't the fanciest, but seeing what others are doing with them and how they're elevating them. It's really interesting. Yeah, Jen Stark, um, she started that, I think she was studying abroad in Europe and couldn't bring all of her materials with her. Mm -hmm. And so, she, like like you said, she was looking around, what can I get that's cheap and abundant, you know? And so that was how she started the construction paper. Um, and yeah, she's also, uh, I think, right around the same age as us. So um, another resilient child of the 80s who's just making the most with those early sort of like elementary materials and transforming mm -hmm. them in ways that most of us would never think to do. And I love that creative exercise of building something so elevated out of the most seemingly restrictive and confined and limited materials. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I guess after the break, we're going to get into one specific piece that actually Tom identified as one of his favorites. Now we're back and I've got Emily Fiedler once again talking about Tom does Longchamp and we're looking at one of his portraits from 2018 this is a portrait of his friend don he made this using markers as we've said i don't know if it's necessarily his primary media but it's probably a medium he's best known for because he also does a lot of like really cool and interesting live animations and mm -hmm. um like streaming and just he's a cross media cross disciplinary artist but it's the marker stuff that just really hooked me in. Um, and so I asked him which was his favorite. And he he sent me this portrait of Don from 2018. As you're looking at this, what are you seeing? What's jumping out at you? I just loved the color and like the transparency of it. Like how in the areas where all the parts combine and how the colors mix together. Like I'm looking at his glasses where they meet like right by his hair. Um, that's something that's really engaging and interesting to me. I also love the fingerprint texture of the flannel shirt because it helps it read so much more as the fabric rather than a flat piece of paper. Um, the eyes they are always such a pivotal point of an art piece, but once again, the colors and the way they overlap, it almost looks like there's the genuine like watery sparkle in the eye. Yeah. 
I I would definitely agree with that. Those it's the little details, the highlights that give mm-hmm. it that that bit of life. Um, as I'm looking at this, I'm struck by how, on first glance, it feels like such a traditional portrait. I mean, the the framing of it, you know, sort of like the the shoulders up, and you know, the face is essentially central um, from left to right. At least, you know, the face is slightly above center of the paper. Um, But, like, it feels very traditional, very familiar. Mm -hmm. And then as I start to look closer, I realize, like, oh, that's not, like, a pastel drawing. I see these fingerprints that give it that texture that just, it feels foreign to me. Like I've seen different techniques with markers, um, you know, you can use them to to color patterns. It doesn't have to be solid. You can paint over a water soluble marker to get get that ink wash and stuff like that. But this idea of the fingerprints and smudges, it's it's something different. In some ways, um, I think probably because of the stenciling that he's doing. Um, it almost in some areas gets a little bit like uh, like a cubist sort of fragmentation. Where do you see that? I'm like, as I'm looking at, as I'm looking at the layers of colors that are like on the cheeks and stuff like that, you know, I see these sort of hard edges that are starting to define planes and separate them. Mm-hmm. And like, if I, if I zoom in enough that like I'm not even seeing the full face, but I'm just seeing like the, I'm just seeing the jawline, the cheek, that kind of stuff. Like it starts to, like I see these edges that it starts to, I don't know. It starts to do something a little bit different, a little bit more abstracted. Of course. I mean, I guess if you zoom into anything far enough, it starts to become an abstraction. (laughs) I mean, George O'Keefe built her career around that concept, but <laughs> but there's something about the coloring because it's not like natural coloring, right? You but know what I mean? Still reads as like a like a person's skin tone, just like extremely saturated. Yeah, I mean, there's there are parts where it seems natural. I mean, the the blue and the green and the hair. I mean. I, I don't know if, if Don's dyeing his hair like that. I guess I, I'd have to see see the man himself, but I, that it doesn't would be interesting to compare. It that it doesn't feel entirely natural to me. It it feels a little bit like expressionistic. You know, I it think feels if like I take if, the hair off, it helps. It feels to me like it feels to me like those um yeah, it feels to me like a, a little bit almost post-impressionistic, a little bit like that early 20th century where they're they're playing with non-realistic color schemes and heightening it for emotional resonance and stuff like that. I mean, like there's the warmth of the skin tones and the the blues and purples and greens in the hair feel like they are creating a little bit of value and contrast. Um, it doesn't feel like it's selected because that's his natural hair color. Um, and similar in the skin tones, like I, I doubt he had purple on the cheeks so much, but it defines a shadow. And so there's almost like a, 
I don't know, like a Matisse-like <laughs> kind of application of color. Now, here's the question. Do you think you would be as drawn to it if it was a less expressive color palette? Would I personally? Mm-hmm. No. I agree. I I, I wouldn't. Um, and I think that's partially because... <laughs> You know, when 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 Tom listed his his influences, I'm just like, yep, same, same, you know, like he except for except I never really liked surrealism or Dada the way that he does. Like he he says he has that that love of stuff that breaks the rules. But like he talked about he loved Van Gogh and um, a little bit of Picasso, but not really his favorite, mm-hmm. um, as well as like more contemporary influences like Nickelodeon cartoons and, and um, stuff like that. Like there's this broad sampling of stuff. And in a real way, I think this reminds me of Chuck close, I think Mm -hmm. Um, because of the fact that, you know, Chuck close started off with the photorealistic stuff, but as you well know, um, you know, he started to get more experimental with like, emphasizing the grid and pixelating stuff and making it seem altered. And this to me feels like you're taking that traditional skill of portrait drawing and then just like messing with it and seeing what you can do to break all the rules and break that system apart. Mm -hmm. And I love that about it. I can totally see the parallels too with Chuck Close's like textures and patterns too with the fingerprint technique and the patterns that are made from the stencils. Yeah. Um, and there's something really nice about, I think the use of fingerprints because there's an intimacy to that. There's like a physical mark of the unique artist's hand in the work. I mean, literally in some ways it feels like a version of, the impasto of the impressionists and post-impressionists or, you know, the the different methods that artists would use, whether it's like Frankenthaler's uh, pouring, the soaking and staining, or like Jackson Pollock's drips. It's like there's something on a primal, visceral level about that Aww. human connection of their individual mark-making. Yeah. So I guess to wrap this up, where do you feel like this one belongs? Is this a is this a museum piece? Is this one for the Louvre? Is this one for the lab? Is this one for the Louvre? I have been thought thought about this all morning because I'm like I'm going to be questioned this. Of course, has anyone ever put a piece of artwork in the Louvre? Oh yeah. Okay, the episodes that I've listened to, I have not heard that. And I'm like, here I am, like every episode, like, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, well, because I try to set a positive tone in general. Yeah. You know, I try to, I, I, you know, there's so much stuff about, out there in like podcast land that is like, this true crime, we're going to be entertained by the worst thing that ever <laughs> happened in a whole bunch of people's lives. Yeah. Um, and so I, I try to have a bit of bit more positive tone to it, and you know whatever I try to mostly talk about works that I love or my guest loves. But that being said, I don't necessarily think of the Lou in the way that my college roommate described it as the place that art goes to die. So much as just like 
it has its time and place, but maybe we don't need to dwell on it. Like you a know? fast fashion type trend. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm still not picking Louvre. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would put this in the Louvre. I love the uh, creativity and material and use and elevation of an elementary material. I also love the expressionist color, color scheme and use of identity, both in the portraiture and the mark making um, with the fingerprints, like you said. Um, I think it should be celebrated. I would absolutely love to walk into a museum and see like hundreds of these just on the wall. And I could spend hours examining each little part of where the colors connect. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, I, I'm struggling to find a way to, to disagree with you because I do love this work. Like, I, I think, you know, the, the argument could be made for the lab because it's a, an innovative use of the tools. You know, it's it's a different way of looking at a marker and people could learn a lot from just the study of how the image is constructed. But I do think I think what really elevates it for me is there's something that's just. It's satisfying to look at. You know, and I think that's largely because his subject matter, he's primarily focused on portraits. It's so much about human connection. And there's something like hardwired in us that we like we we will sort of create faces and see faces in inanimate objects all of the time. If you see two circles and a line, you on some level, you start to see a face in that like there's something just innate in people that like we find comfort in human connections in seeing people's faces and these portraits of of friends they they feel warm and mm. comforting and soothing and the fact that he's doing this with his fingerprints and that technique, it adds another layer of human connection to them that I think is just so powerful. Like I, I love the, I love the innovation. Don't get me wrong. I always love someone who does something that's surprising and still works, but I think there's something about just the warmth of these portraits that we need to see more of out there. Mm-hmm. I think I think that should be in the museum. That's just something that is surprising, that delights, and also has soul behind it. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time once again. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Are you going to preview your next episode? Well, uh, next week, if all goes according to plan, I am actually going to wrangle Tom to talk about one of his favorite influences, um, which is someone who actually surprised me. So tune in next week to to find out what what artwork Tom Deslongchamp actually enjoys. 
This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.